If you were to ask my favourite wife how she manages life in the Atkinson household, she describes her management style as being that of an enlightened dictator. The other three in the household do as they're told, and she is the, the one in charge, which takes me back, in a way, to the days when I was a student of history. Long, long ago, I have a degree in it that's rather dusty. And I was what is called an early modernist, which is basically Renaissance Reformation through to about Napoleon, was the sort of the period I'm particularly interested in. And within that, there is an intriguing question in the 18th century about what they called enlightened despots. So you're thinking of Catherine the Great of Russia, who built the Hermitage, Frederick the Great of Prussia, I think built the Brandenburg Gate, and Joseph of Austria, for some reason, called Great, but these were the three figures. And I remember writing a number of essays about whether or not they were enlightened despots. They were certainly despotic. No one could argue with them. Whether they were enlightened was a, a matter of significant debate amongst those who were studying them. My preferred period of history, lots to do with kings, from some who were incredibly poor, like Charles I, who made a mess here in England that culminated in the Civil War, to those who were very autocratic, like Louis XIV, who in one sense was very successful, because he held France together, he expanded its borders, he rid it of Protestantism. But on the other hand, of course, he caused a lot of bloodshed, and life for the ordinary people was not necessarily easy. Kingship is an interesting concept. And it's a concept that we need to think about today, amidst all the cries of Hosanna and the palms being strewn on the way, because Jesus comes as a king. And we have to, in a way, ask some questions that enable us to hopefully grasp what happened on this day long ago and what its continuing significance for us as we journey forward. So the first question we're going to ask is as simple as this. What is a king? Now, we are non-conformists, and therefore I would anticipate that we have a, a spectrum of understanding of, of kings and queens. There will be those who, on the one hand, will be great supporters of the monarchy, think it's the best thing since sliced bread, through to those who are ardent republicans and would want the monarchy abolished and got rid of. But we need to park all of that because it's not at all relevant to what we need to think about today. Kingship is there in the Bible, but it bears no relation to the constitutional monarchy that we have today. A bit of history. Go back into the page of the Old Testament, and when Abraham and his six followers came and set up, if you like, the people of Israel in the land of Canaan, they were different because they didn't have a king. All the surrounding areas did, and for a while, the Hebrews continued without kings. They had judges, people like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah, and most intriguingly, a woman called Deborah, who came to prominence to help them in times of great need, but there wasn't that figurehead who ruled over all. But the Hebrews being the bunch of whingers and groaners that they were, looked around at everybody else and said to God, look, they've got a king, why can't we have one? And in spite of being advised that it wasn't a good idea because God was their king, they wouldn't give up their whinging, and eventually God relented and said, okay, you can have a king. And they got a man called Saul. 
who wasn't the best of kings. But he was replaced by David, who becomes for the Jews the, the image of what kingship should be like, even though we know his record wasn't 100% perfect. He had his weaknesses. He was not averse to adultery or putting people to death for his own purposes. And then, following David, kingship goes on. The kingdom is divided into two, into what we call Israel and what we call Judah. And there are a series of kings who come along. And if you want to read through the book of kings, you will see the way in which they are assessed. Whether they are good kings or bad kings. And basically, if they don't focus worship on Jerusalem, they're not true to Yahweh, they're a bad king. And if they are following the path that the Bible wants them to, they are good kings. But ultimately, of course, kingship comes to an end because the kings don't listen to God. Their people are sent off to Babylon. They come back and then they suffer under the leadership of various other nations, culminating, of course, in the Romans at the time of Jesus, but still with some kings like Herod, who, to put it bluntly, were not the most savoury of characters. And the problem with kingship, of course, was what, how it made life for the ordinary people. Kings are very good at demanding taxes, at demanding soldiers for their armies. The people, though, of course, would long for peace, which would mean that they could tend their vines and look after their olive groves, which would mean that they would have enough food that they would, in a sense, be prosperous, not in financial terms, but in terms of having time to devote to the land and what they're about to ensure that they could be fed, that there wouldn't be people coming along and taking part of their produce to serve the needs of the Lord's arm, the king's armies. They wouldn't be coming to take the menfolk away to fight against the various people who surrounded Israel and Judah and were making their life difficult at various points. The people wanted a king who would make life better. Simple as that. And sadly, not many of them did. So kingship isn't an easy concept, because the biblical examples are not great. And yet, we sing, the king of love my shepherd is, we sing King of Kings, Majesty. We sing all these hymns that include this word, these words, reminding ourselves that there's an important concept here that we need to reflect on. All of which, I suppose, is intended to make us look to the one whom Zechariah said would come riding on a donkey. And to ask ourselves, secondly, who is this king who comes on a donkey? One of the problems for monarchies is, is what we call primogeniture, where the eldest son tends to take over, or now more enlightened days, it's often daughters that take over, but it, it does create problems. In this country, Charles I, this king who led us into civil war, couldn't talk until he was five and couldn't walk until he was seven. He was, in many ways, exactly the wrong person to be king, which is witnessed by what he then went on to do and created the chaos 
that led to the horrors of the civil war and all those things. Jewish history was full of kings like Charles who got it wrong, who made life difficult. But I suppose in the ideas of the time, there was no real alternative to kingship. So when you have passages like this one in Zechariah that points this king who's going to come riding on a donkey, it makes life quite exciting for the Jews because they gain a sense this king is going to come and in a way perhaps take them back to the glory days of King David. Put things right. Make life better. So we come to this time of great anticipation where amongst the Jews there was great sense of the Messiah was on his way. There were those who were looking to Jesus, believing he was the Messiah, and that something was going to happen that would make that evident and clear. And here we need to suspend our knowledge and leave Easter out of the story for a minute and think about the particulars of Palm Sunday. And who is this man? He is an unlikely king because, firstly, he comes from Nazareth, which is a nowhere, out-of-the-way place. No great significance to it at all. Secondly, if he is of the royal line, it's a long, long time ago, and therefore it's unlikely that he would have the, the kudos to pull people together to bring about a kingship in the way that David was able to do all those years ago. But this prospective king, of course, is a teacher. But not someone belonging to one of the great rabbinic schools. Not somebody taught by one of the great masters whose names the people would recognise. Yes, he appeared to have some authority. Yes, he said things that were challenging and different. Yes, he made people think. But really, he wasn't perhaps the king that they were expecting. It's reasonable to suggest that Jesus both divided and encouraged. Some walked away. Others saw in him this great picture of hope that they longed to be fulfilled. So on this day, we have to imagine the scene in Jerusalem as this wandering teacher, this man who perhaps was the talk of the town, appears on a donkey. And we have to wonder what was going through the minds of the disciples and even more intriguingly, what was going through the minds of the crowd who came out to acclaim him? Where did the cry of Hosanna come from? Who was the first person to lay down their cloak or to lay down a palm branch in front of Jesus? How was this excitement built up? The gospel stories don't really tell us. But what we can perhaps conclude is that Jerusalem was full of excitement about this man Jesus. And what was going to happen? And he's sitting himself on this donkey, 
probably made life even more exciting because those in the know would go back to Zechariah and this picture, the one coming with what's described as the warrior's sword to put things back how they should be, to call the people back home, to restore Jerusalem, to make it great again. Hence, perhaps, Hosanna, there was this huge sense of excitement. And then he gets into Jerusalem, presumably gets off his donkey, walks around the temple, has a look at what's going on, and then goes back to Bethany. And you have to imagine the crowd standing there saying, what's just happened? Is this how it was meant to be? You can almost imagine the confusion there in their brains and beginning the process that led that same crowd perhaps to cry crucify by Friday. Even on this day when Jesus came with all this redolent symbolism, he's still posing questions, he's still making people think. And thirdly, we need to think about whether Jesus is really our king. I don't like forms that ask me to write my nationality because I want to write Lancastrian, but they won't accept that because as far as I know, until um, who do you think you are come calling, my bloodline is entirely Lancastrian. It's how I understand myself. It's how I relate to the world. I struggle to see what it means to be English or even to be British. That's just part, I suppose, the way that my brain works. But that doesn't mean that I'm obsessed with being a Lancastrian. I don't sit at home pining for Lancastrian delicacies like uh, black peas and savoury duck and hot pot. That isn't part of what that means. I've spent only 17 of my 53 years living in Lancashire, but it has that draw. It's where, in a sense, I suppose, I think of as being home in some way, in some significance, even though very few relatives of mine still live there. It has a pull, but it doesn't dominate my life. The danger sometimes is that the reality of Jesus has a pull, but we don't allow him to be our king. In days of yore, people would promise allegiance, swear loyalty to their kings. The question we have to ask ourselves is how central is Jesus to our lives and who we are? Day by day, how do we reveal that Jesus is the one to whom we are loyal, the one whom we follow? in the way that we live, the way that we do our business, the way that we deal with our friends and relatives and neighbours, the way we do all the simple, ordinary things of life, how do they show what's really important for us? Because this Jesus who came as king came to offer something entirely different 
to what all these other kings offer. Because in the words of a song we'll sing in a few minutes' time, he comes as the servant king. And that is something radically different from all that had gone before him. Even those kings who had been very religious and had restored something of Jerusalem's honour had encouraged the Jews to be faithful, still in a sense would lord it over, would still demand their taxes, would still demand that loyalty to go to fight and whatever else. Jesus throws all that out of the window. And his kingship is much, much more about what he does for us and not what we do for him. Our servant king came to take our place. So on the cross, we can find forgiveness. Our servant king came to say, look for the signs of the God in heaven and respond to them because the kings and queens of this world are not really what kings should be like. We have a king who shows his solidarity with us, who stands alongside us in our need as in our joys. A king who doesn't demand, but a king who invites us to respond. Not a king who, when we get it wrong, makes life more difficult for us, but a king who picks us up, dusts us down, and invites us to journey once more. Our king, who's entering to Jerusalem, we celebrate today, our king whose journey through what we call Holy Week, we are invited to follow. To see how on the Thursday, he instituted this royal meal of bread and wine that we'll share in a few moments' time to see how on the Friday, when the darkness came, when the world stood still, he says to the whole of humanity, here is the better way of love. Are you willing to walk with us. It was really interesting yesterday listening to the coverage of these marches taking part across America and a particularly eloquent young woman, I think in Washington, speaking to the political classes and in effect saying to them, we will deselect you. You will not be elected if you do not support gun control and overcoming something of the problems that America faces. It was a, a rallying call in a way to the nation to return and respond to what is right. And it will be interesting to see how America responds. These days, it's Christ's rallying call to us. Do we want to embrace his way of love? 
or the way of humanity? Do we want to know forgiveness or contend with guilt and shame? Do we want to know joy or the temporary emotions of this world? And if we want to be his subjects, to be his people, are we ready to be his brothers and sisters with all the honour that offers to us? And importantly, are we ready to journey through this week and discover the forgiveness, the peace, the hope that our servant king offers to us? How do we follow? Who do we follow? These are the big questions of this time of year. Are we going to place our trust in governments elected or self-appointed? Or are we going to follow a man riding on a donkey? Where is kingship? Is it there in humility and love? Is it there in self-sacrifice and the companionship of care? Jesus comes riding on a donkey once more and he invites us to follow, to walk with him and see on Friday the depths that humanity stoops to and then next Sunday to allow that to enable us to celebrate the great victory of love that comes with the good news of resurrection. Amen.